Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Trevor Miller. Trevor's from the Canadian Psychedelic Association. He also runs a treatment center in Vancouver called Liberty Root. He helps people off of opioids and heroin and a bunch of uh, other stuff. He's a really cool guy and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Guys, please like and uh, subscribe to the podcast. I really do appreciate that. Uh, if you can, take some time to give it a good rating. That really helps out with the algorithms. And uh, yeah, also share it with like-minded people. Uh, people uh, share the same interests as uh, you and this podcast. I really do appreciate that. It helps it grow. Anyways, guys, let's get into this episode. My guest this week, Trevor Miller. Alright, welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. Today I got from uh, Liberty Root Therapy Limited, Trevor Miller. Thanks for joining me, Trevor. Great to be here, Noor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, so I was like, I'm so interested in your work about, uh, you work with Ibogaine, which is, uh, I guess you can call it a kind of a psychedelic plant medicine. And um, yeah, you help uh, people get off of like opioids and heroin and stuff. It's such like great uh, work. Uh, before we get into that, uh, Maybe can you uh, give our audience a little bit of background of yourself, uh, where you came from, and uh, how you got into this work? For sure. Uh, in 2001, shortly after 9-11, I was distraught with the state of the world, as I think a lot of people were, and I started looking at different ways that I might be able to give back, and I was new to Vancouver at the time, and turned my attention to the downtown east side, which was uh, a neighborhood in Vancouver that looked like it could use some help. It's known as the poorest postal code in Canada. It's kind of got a visible level of poverty that is very unique to, in, to all of North America, I think. It's, it's an incredible place. And uh, I just started kind of naively look, poking around, seeing what I could do to maybe bring some new perspective because I knew I didn't have any of the qualifications you would normally have to take on a project like that. But that essentially turned into about a 10-year networking and researching project until about 2009 when Ibogaine came on the radar as a way to potentially help. And I had been familiar with some plant medicines. I had hung out at the original Urban Shaman here in town. So I was familiar with plant medicines, but had never really put two and two together as uh, Ibogaine being able to help the downtown east side. And that, uh, I'll, I'll explain a bit about Ibogaine. Iboga is a shrub that comes from Africa. It's been used ceremonially for centuries in countries like Gabon and Cameroon, where the Bwidi tradition has grown up around the use of this plant medicine. And you can extract molecules, you know, uh, refine, the proce refine the product to be left with just ibogaine. And ibogaine in 1962, uh, somebody who was addicted to heroin, his chemist friend said, here, try this Ibogaine stuff, and I think he was just trying it for fun, really, but it, he came out the other end of a 36-hour-long trip. It's a very powerful psychedelic. And he came out the other end, and he said, wait a second, I haven't wanted heroin the whole time I've been on this, nor do I want it now. 
and ibogaine clinics started popping up around the world. It was illegal in, uh, it is illegal in the US. It's not regulated in Mexico. There's a few providers in Mexico. And by the time I started my business in 2012, ibogaine was listed as a natural health product here in Canada. So I was legally able to work with it. And we treated about 200 people through my business Liberty Root, mostly for opioid use disorder. It's incredibly effective. It shows anywhere from a 40 to 60% success rate anecdotally. And uh, I, I think it's a 100% success rate as far as detoxing a person, but then they still have decisions to make once they leave our facility. But we had doctors working with us, nurses working with us. And then in 2017, um, Health Canada rescheduled Ibogaine. So they put it on the prescription drug list, which is actually a good place for it because Ibogaine is potentially dangerous. So you don't want a natural health product to be potentially dangerous. But unfortunately, it's kind of put it in a regulatory no-go zone. So I haven't been able to work with it through Liberty Root since, uh, since yeah, about 2017. But in the meantime, I'm the chair of the board for MAPS Canada, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. So I've been moving forward kind of the whole cause in that role. And we've just recently started the Canadian Psychedelic Association as well, of which I'm a founding board member. And that's uh, mapscanada.org, psychedelicassociation.net. And uh, yeah, we're just growing, growing the psychedelic association in particular so that it might represent all these medicines that are becoming more and more popular in a really good way as they do hit the mainstream. Yeah, man. Uh, I think they are definitely getting more popular for sure. I, I'm actually kind of a guy who's done a lot of like ayahuasca. I've done a lot of work with that. So uh, I'm kind of familiar with it. But uh, I'm really interested in like how Ibogaine like actually takes away the like people's need for like methadone and stuff. Uh, and like actually yeah. like uh, how like how does that actually work? Uh, do you know? Yeah, like, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild, and there hasn't been enough studies that have been done on it, unfortunately. But um, you mentioned methadone. I'll clarify that it's not great using ibogaine and methadone side by side. It's best to switch somebody to a short-acting opiate, like um, you know, even heroin's better than going in with methadone. The issue with methadone is it prolongs the QT interval of the heart, which is essentially the space in between heartbeats. And Ibogaine does that as well. So you don't want too long a space in between your heartbeat. You can ask a dead guy what that's like. So <laughs> you need to come off methadone ideally for about 10 days prior to an Ibogaine treatment. I, actually, at minimum 10 days, ideally for about a month because methadone is pretty sticky. So you can switch over to something like morphine here in British Columbia. The doctors will help with that. Um, but essentially, the way the process works is we'll bring people in for about 10 days. And as I said, we had a doctor that worked with us. So the doctor would uh, prescribe morphine. So based on how much street drug they were using or how much methadone or whatever they were using prior to arrival, they will prescribe enough morphine so that it keeps the patient comfortable. And we'll keep them on the morphine for a couple of days and stabilize them, see where they're at. And then we start working with low doses of ibogaine. So maybe that third morning they're with us, rather than giving them morphine, we'll give them a small bit of ibogaine and it takes away their withdrawals. So rather than taking an opiate that day, they take a bit of ibogaine and within about 45 minutes, they feel that opioid withdrawal disappear. 
And because it's just a small dose, the withdrawals do come back later on that day, maybe four to six hours later. And then because the ibogaine has done some of its work, the we don't have to put them back on as much morphine. So we do that for a couple of days and taper them down off of the opiate they're on a little bit prior to the next day, which is when we bring in the registered nurse and do the full flood dose, it's called. So that's kind of the full 36-hour long ibogaine experience, after which uh, they'll get a decent night's sleep. But essentially, the, the addiction's busted at that point. The, the withdrawals and cravings disappear. And how that happens, um, like I say, we need more we need more science on it, but it is a visionary plant medicine. So sometimes people and my clients have kind of seen at a cellular level what's happening to them. And one of the things they have seen, I, I remember this one woman in particular mentioned that she could see at a cellular level that when she was putting the opiate in her system, it was really almost like a goop that went over the cell. And it, it went on to that opioid receptor and it, it kind of provided the, the pain relief that it, that it did. But then she had a visualization of the ibogaine itself coming in and it's almost like it scrubs that opioid receptor and brings it back to an opiate naive state. So the thing with opioid addiction is we all have natural painkillers in our system, our endorphins, and if we take an opioid, and uh, our endorphin is basically our body's natural opioid, and if we take that from outside, though the endorphin kind of forgets how to make itself. We take enough from the outside for long enough, then your body's own painkillers don't work anymore. So um, if you don't have that external opioid then you go into painful withdrawals and the painful withdrawals is really just like the pain of living catching up with you because you don't have those endorphins anymore so um that's why you know an opioid addiction can really can be really debilitating because a person knows that they have this massive pain and all they need to do in order to get rid of that pain is have a small bit of opioid and they'll be better so it really drives them to reach for that opioid in, in, a, in a place, in a position we're in right now where a lot of these substances are prohibited, it will often drive people to crime and drive people to whatever it takes in order to get that pain relief. So ibogaine, you wait until somebody's in a little bit of withdrawal, then you add the ibogaine, and like I say, it seems to kind of press reset and, and scrubs somebody's uh, opioid system to put it back into an opioid naive state. And then shortly thereafter, their body's own endorphin system kicks in and starts working again. We really encourage people on their way out of Liberty Root to, you know, do exercise, do meditation, do things that are going to get their own feel-good chemicals pumping again because yeah. that's an important part of the puzzle. Yeah, and I think that's with any kind of like plant medicine. I've noticed um, even with ayahuasca, like it can provide like an amazing changes to you. Um, but if you don't have some sort of a spiritual practice or some sort of like just practice for yourself afterwards, uh, you can definitely not get a lot of those benefits that the plant gave you in the first place, right? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like... Um... Yeah, like if you're maybe I I heard this example just the other day. If if this uh, a beautiful person goes does this beautiful ayahuasca ceremony, and then has to go home to their abusive relationship, that's not great. That's not integration. You need to kind of be able to find a way to take the lessons and insights that these medicines give you and be able to implement them 
into action so that uh so yeah so that they don't believe just remain these kind of pie in the sky potentials but rather something actual in your own life mm-hmm. there's lots lots of different tricks to get that integration into your into the equation yeah um so you said 36 hours uh, for like when you take a full dose of ibo uh ibogaine right yeah iboga or ibogaine it's um what's the what's the difference yeah. uh Iboga, well, iboga is the plant material itself, and you can refine it. So, if you went to the jungle in Africa, you would eat basically sawdust, and you would eat copious amounts of it. But if you you can refine that once using a mild acidic solution like vinegar or um, lemon juice, even, and then you're left with a brown powder, and that's iboga total alkaloid, and that contains all of the alkaloids within the plant, not just ibogaine. So we would use a, a mix of that as well as the ibogaine itself, which is just one more refining process using hydrochloric acid, which pulls out just the ibogaine molecule. And their their experiences are very similar. It's uh, it would take a very experienced practitioner, I would say, to kind of put their their finger on the differences between the two or even the three of them. Um, the the first 12 hours of the session is kind of where all the bells and whistles are. And the way we would work is uh, people would basically spend their spend the full 36 hours or more in their bedroom. And we would have somebody sitting with them the entire time, including the registered nurse. But the first 12 hours of the experience are kind of where all the bells and whistles are, where all the psychedelic effects are. So that's like... Um, it's it's iboga is called oniric so as related to dreams and it's very dreamlike and people can get incredible insights just like you do on ayahuasca or with other psychedelic psychotherapy i've had multiple people describe um, that scene from the movie minority report where tom cruise is flipping through a whole bunch of different computer screens and then grabs one out and pulls it out and expands it and looks deeper at it and I've experienced something similar to this too it's like you you're able to kind of file through your memories and then grab a memory pull it out expand it look at it from a whole bunch of different angles get some insight around it put it back move on to the next one I've heard a few people describe that process <laughs> That's so um, cool. <laughs> it's known as an ancestor medicine a lot of people will end up speaking to their ancestors who have passed. I, for example, once uh, met up with my grandmother and grandfather who had passed, and they gave me some some key lessons. Um, I once spoke to, I once had a guy who was uh, kind of very athe- atheistic in mindset. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't too sure about this after it happened, but he had a vision of walking down this really big road with a whole bunch of people on it and the the person in front of him turned around and it was his mother and it except it was his mother and she had been his mother in a previous lifetime as well so he was given insights around that i've had you know i've treated Iraq and Afghanistan special force war vets and they've really lived a lot of 
relived a lot of their time in Iraq and Afghanistan and got to see it from a new light. And yeah, man, there, there are as many stories as there are people who have gone through the experience, just like ayahuasca, right? It's ineffable. How do you put your finger on it? But yeah, generally about that first 12 hours is the bells and whistles. The next 12 hours, there's still a lot of that. Um, maybe you're a little more grounded, a little more in your body and, um, it kind of helps you process what's been going on. And then the last, the last 12 hours is a lot of that. I always tell people the worst part of Iboga is that you're going to be as tired as you ever have been, but you're not going to be able to sleep. But yeah. eventually, that, eventually that will let up. But about that 36-hour mark, that will let up. So some people suffer through that process of not being able to sleep. And some people just make peace with it and kind of meditate through it and... And that's what I encourage people to do, for sure. Yeah, honestly, that sounds uh, kind of similar to uh, ayahuasca with my experiences, too. I can never sleep, and um, I always, like, to get through it, I've always needed to have that kind of uh, acceptance and meditative attitude towards it of just being like, hey, just accept that this is it, and, like, just, like, uh, once you accept it and, like, have that kind of, like, focus on your breath kind of attitude, uh, I can actually get through it a lot better. Um yeah, so 36 hours. So I, And you do think that uh, this is something you pretty much need a guide for, for sure, right? Like, this doesn't seem safe to yeah, be taken. Yeah, is the one that you I really wouldn't recommend doing on your own. Um, there are... Iboga is the one psychedelic that can potentially kill you. There is a cardiotoxicity issue with Iboga and Ibogaine, and that's why we get EKGs done on people prior to arrival. We have an EKG machine that we use while they're here. Just because we, like I say, there is, if you have a prolong, an already prolonged QT interval in your heart, Iboga is going to prolong that QT interval as well. So we just want to make sure that you don't have that already happening. Otherwise, it can get very dangerous. I've had an adverse event where a gentleman really wanted treatment. He had been addicted to heroin for 20 years. He was at his wit's end. He was desperate. He, he, he was ready to kill himself. So he was willing to do whatever it took. And he forged his EKG knowing that he had a bad heart. He put somebody, he put uh, used Photoshop and took his name and put it on a good EKG and sent that to us. And he ended up in uh, for the first 15 hours everything seemed to be going fine with the treatment then he started seizing thankfully my nurse was right there we got a defibrillator on him pretty quick thankfully the paramedics arrived within two or three minutes it seemed they were very quick and he went to the hospital but he needed to be defibrillated 17 times in the first 24 hours and he ended up in a coma for a week. They weren't sure he was going to pull out of it. Thankfully, he did. And he ended up in the hospital for six weeks. He is now three years sober and alive. Holy. And happy he did that. But it wasn't a very pleasant experience for me or my physician or my nurse or, or even him. That's for sure. His family kind of pushed me out of the equation at first. They, they blamed me or at least a couple members of the family blamed me for what was happening. And then a week or so later, once he came out of the coma, they're like, actually, this, this may have worked. Would you mind coming and keeping our son company? So I was in the hospital every day with him for those last four or five weeks. 
and his family loves me now, but it was pretty hairy there for a little while. So I just really thank God he had us professionals around. We knew exactly what to do when that happened. And um, thank God he lived. But some people, there's, I think there's been about 20 or so recorded deaths in the last 10, 12 years with Iboga. So you you need to be really careful. You, do, you Not only do you need a provider, you need a reputable provider. You need to, to dig into, you know, looking into the way they work and try and get some maybe testimonials. I wish Liberty Root was up and running. We may, I am moving towards actually launching Liberty Root on a larger scale right now. And uh, that includes possibly taking over an Ibogaine provider in the Bahamas, where they're legal to work in the Bahamas, oh, wow. as, as well as potentially a country in Europe as well. So I might uh, be doing, actually, it's kind of well underway right now. We're going to be raising a bunch of money to, to launch Liberty Root in a big way. But I, And I've got a lot of great contacts in Health Canada. We're working towards actually getting permission for Ibogaine in Canada. In the meantime, I've been using high-dose vitamin C to help people detox off of opiates as well, which is really remarkable, incredibly safe, and uh, I think we'll, we'll start with Liberty Root clinics that use at least high-dose vitamin C to help people get off opiates until we can get permission to work with Ibogaine. Well, all right, that's awesome, man. I, I wish you guys the best with that. Um, so can you give us a little bit of an insight then what the like opioid crisis and the heroin crisis and like especially like in Eastside Vancouver is like right now and what's the avenues for people to get help right now or get off of it legally and uh, how effective are they? For sure. Well, you know, unfortunately the the go-to medical solution for opioid use disorder is to give people more opioids. <laughs> so the, if, if you go to your doctor right now and tell them you're addicted to heroin, they are going to make moves to put you on either Suboxone or Methadone, which are both opiate replacement drugs, which are both essentially opiates. And the sad part of them is they're, they're just slightly more toxic than an opioid like clean heroin or clean morphine, which are very much biologically benign to a certain degree. You can stay... You can stay on, you know, good clean heroin your whole life and live a long, healthy life. It's it's when you start kind of, you know, the fentanyl crisis is obviously a problem. People don't know what they're getting. People, everything, everybody really expects fentanyl now and even wants it because it's a stronger drug. But no, people, people want it. I didn't even know that. Yeah, people are seeking it. Like, I'm sorry to say that if uh, I have heard this multiple times if people hear that somebody's overdosed as an example people will on the downtown east side will then seek out whichever batch that was because it's the stronger stuff so once you get the strong stuff in your system like the fentanyl like does regular heroin kind of like not it just it doesn't quite quite cut it the same oh my and God. i th and i think um you know, that's different for other people. Like there is an injectable hydromorphone, which is dilaudid, which is essentially essentially chemically identical to heroin. You can get on the injectables program in the downtown east side now. But if you were in the suburbs, you know, you got hooked on pills, you go to your doctor, you say you're hooked on pills, they're going to put you on methadone or suboxone, which is a daily 
opiate that you take. It's got it's long lasting, so you just take it once a day. And then theoretically you can wean yourself off of that with a slow taper and just kind of every week or every couple of weeks you lower your intake of that. Unfortunately, that is a lot harder than it sounds because you're going to be faced with withdrawal with withdrawal symptoms by doing that. And uh, there's just it's not a it's not a pretty situation. So what we've got here in British Columbia is people can ask their doctor to put them on Cadian now. And Cadian is a long-acting morphine that works similar to methadone or Suboxone. You just take it once a day. It's just a little bit cleaner. Some people don't like it as much. Some people like it more. It's hard to find that, that perfect opioid replacement drug. Um, and even... Even if you did find the perfect one like hydromorphone or something like that, which is basically you can inject it, it's just like heroin. I've met people who are on the injectables program who are living in the downtown east side and who are miserable because they can't leave the downtown east side. They need to show up for their injection every day. They want to go visit their mom out east as an example and uh, there's nothing they can do. So. Uh, to, to finish answering your question, I'll speak of that couple actually. I had a couple get in touch with me probably seven or eight months ago now and they were interested in doing Ibogaine and I said she, they were introduced to me through a nurse that works at their clinic where they go to get their injectables and I said, well, unfortunately, I'm not providing Ibogaine right now. I can't legally do that but um, let's stay in touch. So a couple months later, they reached out to me and she was in desperation. She said, I am on the injectables program. So she's getting two 170 milliliter shots of hydromorphone every day, which is a lot. Plus she's on the oral cadian, so the oral morphines, and she was taking 1800 milligrams of oral morphine a day, 1.8 grams plus 100 mil, 170 mil shots. That's enough to kill maybe a couple horses who are opiate naive, like that's an, wow. an incredible amount of dope. And it wasn't keeping her dope sickness away. So she was using street drugs on top of that. Oh, wow. So she, she called me scared to death. She said, what can I do? It's not even keeping my sickness away. I'm going to die here soon. And I said, well, I've heard of this high-dose vitamin C that seems to be working for people. Let's see if we can get some of that into you. So I had heard that high-dose vitamin C might be good for opioid addiction a number of years ago. And I tried taking high-dose oral vitamin C myself, and it just ran straight through me. So I figured if people are going to do this, they probably need intravenous vitamin C, which I don't have easy access to. So I kind of just forgot about it. And then a physician friend of mine uh, spoke to me maybe a year ago now and said, have you heard of high-dose vitamin C for opioid addiction? I said, yeah, but it just seems like a bit of a unicorn. I don't know how to actually do it. She said, well, I actually found some studies on it and it's got a protocol there. So she sent me an email that had a rat study, a guinea pig study, and a human study from back in the 70s. And it seemed to indicate that high dose oral vitamin C in the form of sodium ascorbate, which is a buffered version of vitamin C, so it's a bit easier on the stomach. Mm -hmm 
Um, and, and it included a protocol on how to detox somebody. So I've still never used the detox protocol, but what I did is I went to a pharmacy I knew that had sodium ascorbate. I brought it, bought it for this couple and she started taking it orally. So basically the, a high dose vitamin C opiate detox protocol is about two to four grams of vitamin C every two hours while they're awake. So she started doing this. Her sweet spot is about two grams every two hours. The first night she started taking it, she cut her use of street drugs in half. The second night, she cut her use of street drugs in half again. Third night, no street drugs. And then within a month, using just vitamin C in the downtown east side, in the most abject poverty in North America, she was able to go from 1,800 milligrams of oral cadian a day, tapered down to 900 uh, milligrams, sorry, in a month. Then she took those 170 mil shots and turn them into 90 mil shots twice a day. So she did that in the first month, which is crazy. Yeah, that's And crazy. then she got sick for a little while and kind of didn't push it too hard. But now she's down to like 100 milligrams of cadian per day. And her shots are minimal, I think 20 mil shots or something. So her, her partner was using less than she was when she first started. So now once she hit the same level he was on, he started um, stepping down as well. So they're doing remarkably well. The other amazing thing is, um, you know, COVID, coronavirus, <laughs> as coronavirus hits the downtown east side and hits Vancouver, she's been high dosing vitamin C for three months leading into it. <laughs> so she was pretty stoked and I was pretty stoked too because ever since I started learning about high dose vitamin C, I've been mega dosing myself as well. So by the time COVID hit, I'm laughing. I'm like, my immune system's through the roof. <laughs> I've, been, I've been mega dosing this stuff. So I'm happy. Um, I'm actually going to be launching a brand of vitamin C that I can I can provide to people a little bit cheaper than what I'm finding out there. And yeah, I'm going to set up some people who just want to want to come in and have that done for them. So I'm going to be setting up Liberty Root Clinics, including hopefully a storefront on the downtown east side where pre people can come in and kind of use that as a detox and we'll help them wean off opiates in conjunction with the physicians that will be working with us and then hopefully provide some kind of a transformational kick out the end with you know one of these one of these more psychedelic substances if we can find a way to do that in a legal way maybe way, maybe through a study or something like that yeah hopefully well like uh, i did have uh Michael Oliver from Maps uh, on here a little earlier. Did you? Yeah, what a yeah. Great guy. yeah, he is a great guy. So like he was talking about all the work uh, you guys there at Maps are doing to try to get, uh, yeah, try to get these substances legalized. And uh, I really uh, like, I really love that work you guys are doing. So I wanted to ask you like uh, the one thing I really find. You said you went to like Vancouver East Side when you were younger. You didn't know what you were doing. You kind of wanted to help out. I find that story so so cool and uh, I know so many people who want to help like especially in our cool. like, you know like they want to help and uh, 
they 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 see problems like this and they want to help but they don't really know what the hell to do kind of thing you know and they like they kind of seem uh paralyzed with like where do i even start so can you maybe give us a little idea of like where you went to and like well where you would uh recommend people if they want to get into these kind of for sure so let's dig into a little bit more on what happened there so I I graduated from high school. I'm from Kitchener, Ontario. I graduated from high school and I was I just had a knack for entry level management. I I worked at a hotel when I lived in Kitchener. I worked at the Holiday Inn in Cambridge. When I moved to Whistler in '96, uh, because Whistler is such a transient town, I started working at the Holiday Inn there. I became a front desk manager by the time I was 19 years old which had a lot of cool perks to it in a resort town like Whistler. And I kind of figured that was my destination, that I would work in the hotel business the rest of my life. That's just, it, it was a good fit for me. Um, my heart got broken in when I was probably 21 years old or so. And I had been dating this woman for about six months. She, we were, I was about to go on a vacation with her and when we, I went to pick her up for this four day little road trip and she broke up with me out of nowhere. So my heart was broken. I decided I would go spend some time with my favorite uncle in Calgary. So I did this long heartbroken road trip to Calgary. By the time I got to him, we went out for a beer and he's like, Trevor, you worry too much. And he said, I've got a book for you. And he gave me how to stop worrying and start living by Dale Carnegie. And I read the first chapter of that book that night and I slept like a baby. Like I've never had prior to that, I didn't really know books could teach me something. High school hadn't really taught me that. But here I was given this book with this golden information that totally lifted the weight of the world off my shoulders. And I'm like, holy smokes. Books are awesome. So I had always been a big fiction reader, but then I switched to nonfiction and for many years just started diving into whatever interested me. So I liked these kind of personal development books. I liked, I ended up liking books on science and like the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. I eventually, um, I, I got into books like Think and Grow Rich and oh, The yeah, Science of Getting one. Rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so... So people in this kind of anti-capitalist stage we're in in society right now, they don't like the idea of think and grow rich, perhaps. But I, I call it, if you don't like the concept of rich, then think of it as think and grow into whatever you want out of your life. Because it's just, they're really books on manifestation. And I think they're spiritual books on how to kind of hold yourself within the world so that you can get the things that you want out of life. Mm-hmm. So... At the same time, I had been raised in a in the United Church of Canada, uh, um, which is really the most liberal Christian church in Canada of the mainstream churches. We had the first to have gay ministers, the first to officiate a gay wedding. Um, but at the same time, when I was about 17 or 18, I'm like, eh, what are all these adults doing believing this fairy tale, <laughs> which is how I had come to see it. So I really kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater on the whole religion and spirituality thing. But then in in redoing and starting to do all this reading, I came across books like Think and Grow, or even The Science of Getting Rich in particular was kind of my aha moment where within The Science of Getting Rich, it says 
There is a thinking substance that permeates the interspaces of the universe, and a thought impressed upon that substance brings about the thing thought about. So just the way that was worded that day, the way it hit me, I'm like, wait a second, is this the God that the Bible was trying to teach me about? This omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing thing? And I thought, maybe I, maybe I threw the baby out with the bathwater on this religion thing. So I started digging into every religion I could get my hands on and was really looking for the similarities in the religions. And that eventually brought me back to Christianity. I, I now consider Jesus to be one of the most, you know, the biggest badasses to ever walk on the earth. He was a real rebel. Um, and then through all that process, something in me said well, what are you after in all of this reading? What are you seeking for? And the answer came back after thinking about it. Well, I'm after happiness. <clears throat> and then I'm like, okay, well, what do all these books say about happiness? And the answer after thinking about it came back and said, well, well, the happiest people, or at least the people that I would most want to emulate, seem to be helping a hell of a lot more people than I was at the time. <clears throat> and I really didn't like coming to this revelation. Like it was, I was really ego driven. I was, you know, hotel manager type thing. I didn't really think outside the box. I didn't consider myself a social worker type at all. But I liked the hypothesis. I'm like, I said, yeah, it would make me feel really good if I was actually able to help somebody transform their life life in a very pow powerful and positive way. So it's this, it's this strange ironic twist in selfishness that I came upon where for me, I realized that the most selfish thing I could do would be help others because in a selfish way, that would make me feel really good. If, but only if I actually helped others, not if I was just kind of, you know, full of crap, really. So that's when I, I just started looking at um, the downtown east side. And, and I started, I realized I was given the keys to the kingdom with those books like Think and Grow Rich. Like I, I knew that I could take the principles outlined in books like that and apply it to selling whatever I want to make all kinds of money. But then I thought, well, what if I took the principles in these books and focused on giving back with those principles and focused on building a business that was really benevolent? And I started looking at ways in 2005, I started a company just, I printed a bunch of t-shirts with a cool logo on it. And I was going to use the profits from those t-shirts to try and help the downtown east side. And I sold a few t-shirts, made a bit of money, but then realized still that I didn't know what I would do with the money if I made it. So I just kept plugging away. And then thankfully Ibogaine came on the radar. And then when we started Liberty Root, we would set aside money so that we could do pro bono treatments for people in the downtown east side, of which we did a good handful of those while we were operational. So, you know, for people that are looking for ways to give back, I would just encourage them to, to look into books like that, look into the science of getting rich, look into Think and Grow Rich, and use the mentality with the thing those books say is you don't have to know how you're going to accomplish the thing you want to accomplish. You just have to know what and then 
have to go after it. And that's really what I did. Like, I had no idea how I would actually help the downtown east side. I played the long game, a 10-year game on the law of attraction. Even I went and worked on cruise ships in the middle there from about 2006 to 2009. And I'm still thinking about how I can help the downtown east side. Like, I think we need more people to take seemingly impossible goals, which me helping the downtown east side in any way, shape, or form when I was 22 years old and started first doing this, that was a stupid idea. Like, what did I have to bring to the table? But I played the long game on it. So I would encourage people to pick a pet project like cancer, you know, how do how would how would I actually become the person who cures cancer? That's a great question people should ask. Or cleaning the ocean, how could I actually become the person who's responsible for making a big change there? And then don't expect to find the answer overnight, but play the long game and go for it and don't give up and people always underestimate what they can do People overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Mm. So just play the long game and just go for it. And it'll, it works. <laughs> like, yeah. the, everything good in my life has come from this ridiculous idea that I had something to offer the downtown east side. Yeah, man, uh, that's a beautiful advice man thanks for uh, sharing that uh, i agree like I, I read a lot of those books you're kind of you're talking about and uh along the uh, similar wavelengths and like i think uh like you said one of like the main takeaways from that is to like have that uh, idea of what you want and keep it on your mind focused on it and like yeah over time your mind just works wonders like how will yeah. bring all the stuff all the ideas that you need all the circumstances and opportunities yeah. that you need like how that eventually comes to you because you kept this ideal in your head for so long and uh, yeah the long game yeah like underestimate what you can do in 10 years i love that um yeah you uh, i think the, that really yeah is the, the, and then when you mentioned kind of you implied this, but yeah, then synchronicity kicks in. Then, then you're like, then you meet somebody and you're like, actually that person has exactly what I was after. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, it's, it's like the invisible hands start putting the right pieces in your pathway. I did a presentation you can find on YouTube called uh, Psychedelic Entrepreneurship. I presented it at the Psychedelic Psychotherapy Forum. It was one of the earlier talks I ever gave. It's, it's a little information dense, I would say. I would redo it if I was going to do this presentation again. But I think if you press pause and consider some of the things I say throughout that presentation, I really, I really outline how, yeah, like you need to, you get clear on the goal that you want and you get an iron will around the fact that you're not going to give up on it and then strange miracles will happen <laughs> you will meet the right people the 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 introduction that you need will happen you'll get a random email that shouldn't actually have been sent to you <laughs> but is exactly what you needed you know weird things happen when you're on the right path and uh i think we need more people to to deep dive into wanting to help out the world in, in these more grandiose ways. A hundred percent. And uh, like just to toss uh, add to that is like we live in the internet age as well. So these synchronicities we talk about, 
there's uh they it can happen like in so many different ways just because we're just so connected and any real like problem in the world that you want to help with anybody can really help with it if you actually like just dig in and uh, like you said play the long game i love that man um so uh the by the name of my podcast is god yay or day so i i have to ask you that question and uh yeah like i think you were already kind of uh laying down a little bit of the foundation of uh what you kind of believe uh in but uh yeah trevor miller god yay or nay the the short answer is definitely yay the long answer is when you've seen the kind of things that i've seen not only you know within my own subjective states of being but when i when you treat people with a plant medicine called ibogaine and people come in to get their their opioid addiction taken care of and on the way out the door they tell you you know i was an atheist before i walked in here now i know there's a god that you know you see that enough times and it's hard to deny even i'm featured in a documentary called dosed which uh, is wonder- now online. Yeah, wonderful yeah. documentary. Please and check I that sat, out. I sat with Adrienne, the, the star of that documentary, for a, a session. And she she was very atheistic before she went into that session and had, had done a lot of AA, a lot of 12-step stuff where you need to believe in the higher power. And she just couldn't get it. And it was after a session that you see in the movie where she's like, now I know there's a God and people people can experience this at a at a an experiential subjective level and that experience uh, is profound it's transformative it's not I've never met anybody who meets a white man with a white beard in the sky it's more this deep level of being that you know that all of creation comes from mm. my I, I did a lot of spiritual work myself and kind of had a really good spiritual context going into my first DMT experience, which again, that happened through a, a remarkable synchronicity and happened again around this 2002, 2003 time of my life. But um, DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca and it just happened to fall into my lap one day. and. I decided to try it and I took in this DMT and all of a sudden I could feel complete awareness of every single cell in my body and I could feel every cell in my body aware that I was being that I was aware of it and then this awareness expanded to the whole universe and I could just feel every every little atom in the universe and every atom in the universe was aware of me being aware of it and my ego really had been blasted out of the way as soon as this happened but I could feel that there was kind of a presence guiding it and I I could hear sounds coming in from the street and I was being shown that every sight I had ever seen every sound I had ever heard had been pre-sent almost like a FedEx package with that kind of intent behind every single thing we'd experienced as humans. And it's like the present was literally pre-sent. And then I could just sense this, this 
perfect bed of perfection and my ego starts kind of piping up a little bit and says well what what does this mean and this presence says it's perfect you can't mess it up even your ideas of imperfection take place upon a bed of perfection that is there forever and will never go away and i felt like i felt like a child in a crib and was shown that you are you are christ you are buddha you are the one child of the universe and paradoxically so is everyone else and then it was kind of like it was indicated that this is your heritage this is the knowledge you're trying to come back to with your spiritual work that you're doing you want to try and get to this state without the use of this external chemical that's what we're working towards and really i I, all of that happened within about five to seven minutes. Consciousness returned to my body and I started jumping for joy. And in a strange way, I haven't really stopped jumping for joy since that experience. So um, God, yay or nay, definitely yay, but not, not some big bearded man in the sky. God is, God is the essence of our being. We are, we are flowering out of God right now. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Uh, yeah, I have been doing this uh, podcast for a little bit now, and uh, it d definitely seems like uh, the whole idea of like uh, some sort of God up in the sky, like looking down on us, I think that's kind of uh, really left our culture. But um, yeah, like the way you describe it, uh, it seems like there's a lot of people, I uh, included myself, who are kind of looking at it that way. And um, nice. yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I think it is actually kind of important to kind of have these conversations and uh, hopefully, um, well, hopefully bring people to a better like mindset if it helps people. I think it does. Uh, so, like, yeah, we're almost uh, finished here, man. Uh, thank you again for coming on. I uh, really do appreciate it. Uh, before we go, like, since uh, you've been working with so many um, people who uh, have, like, really tough times with addiction and everything, um, and I know you've worked with guys like Gabor Mate and stuff, who was, like, a personal, like, hero of mine, uh, like... Can you give us maybe a little insight on like uh, different ways we can look at people with addiction? Like, uh, cause I think our society looks at them in very just, just bad ways that doesn't help the problem and doesn't, yeah. doesn't help uh, like really uh, even people who have like addiction and families and stuff. So yeah. like, maybe can you give us a, like a uh, idea of like a better way to look at people with addiction? That's a great question. I, I think the common misunderstanding so if you, let's say that there's a drought in Ethiopia or something, and you see people who are suffering uh, tremendously from this kind of external thing that's happening to them, we tend to have a lot of compassion for people like that. But when we look at people with addiction, people tend to think, oh, they are doing that to themselves, which is just, it's just not true. Like there's no there's if you take the chain of cause and effect back into that person's life oftentimes as Gabor Mate has pointed out brilliantly there is tremendous trauma in that person's past so if let's say that something horrible something something that we can't even talk about it's so horrible happens to a person when they're three years old and then when they're and they're suffering for that the rest of their childhood then all of a sudden when they're 13 years old they get a taste of alcohol for the first time and that for the first time since they were three 
degree, it kind of calms their nervous system, allows them to feel a degree of peace. And they're like, oh my God, this is the answer to what happened to me when I was three years old. I feel so much better. And that's just the trap they get in. And then the next time, you know, next time they're smoking a joint, next time they're, they're snorting a, an oxy pill. And it's just a way to self-medicate. And none of us, Gabor Mate's next book is called The Myth of Normal. Like we were all born into a conversation on earth here that was well underway. And that conversation is filled with really a lot of trauma and a lot of stuff that that doesn't make being a human being very easy. And people that get caught up in addiction, they are they are just, you know, doing their best to survive, try doing their best to self-medicate and keep putting one foot in front of the other. And unfortunately, the, the, the method that they chose can be very debilitating and can make life worse than it was when they first started. But it's, it's, it's a place where you need to have compassion for people. There, it's, just, it's, it's human beings who were once little children who went through horrific things. And they are just doing their best to try and, to try and stay alive. I know a lot of people who tell me, look, if... If I didn't have heroin, I would have killed myself a long time ago. You know, heroin's keeping me going. Cocaine's keeping me going. It's, it's, it's the one relief I've got so that I didn't jump off that bridge 10 years ago. So there's a lot of room for compassion when you look at it like that. These are just, these are individuals who are suffering and are just trying to make their suffering a little bit less. And... Thankfully, there are plant medicines that can that can help people out. On that note, I'd love to just make sure that I mention the decriminalization petition that we've got underway right now. So Canada has a unique e-petition process where all you need is 500 signatures on a federally sanctioned e-petition and the petition will be read in the House of Commons and the government must reply. So we put together an e-petition towards decriminalizing plant medicine. If you go to decriminalizenature.ca or decriminalizenature.ca slash petition, you can go directly to the petition from there. We got the 500 signatures we needed within 12 hours, but we're aiming for half a million signatures so that the government knows that the people of Canada really want to make sure that people aren't considered criminals like you for doing ayahuasca or you know me for that first time I smoked DMT. We need to really take away the the criminal stigma that comes with these substances and that would be another good harm reduction technique as well if this petition was entirely um, successful we could make plants like poppies and coca available so that's a great harm reduction method rather than taking street fentanyl you just take a, a mug or three of poppy tea a day that's another tool we can put in our harm reduction arsenal so mm. Yeah, I just, you know, this this world needs compassion more than anything else right now. I mentioned earlier that I, I never thought I would be a social worker type, but it's easier being a human being when you when you do have compassion for other people because when you have compassion for other people, that allows you to have a higher degree of compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. And we all make mistakes. So if you didn't have that horrible judge internally coming down on you when you make your own mistakes 
that that makes your own life a lot better as well. And you offering compassion to other people is going to make it easier for you to offer yourself some well-deserved compassion as well. Oh, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. That was uh, like a really nice thing to hear. Uh, so, yeah, man, uh, besides the petition, anywhere else uh, you want uh, people to check out and uh, get a hold of you or get a hold of uh, our help for sure. If they need to get directly in touch with me, they can do that through libertyroot.net. Um, I post a lot on Facebook. They can find me through there. Um, mapscanada.org if they want to send some money towards doing any uh, research. And psychedelicassociation.net is the Canadian Psychedelic Association. And people can become a friend of the CPA, we're calling it, if they want to help us in that uh, initiative as well. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this, uh, Trevor, and I uh, wish you the best of luck. Hey, everybody, that was this week's episode. Thank you so much uh, for listening. I appreciate the support. The best way you can uh, support this podcast is by going on to Apple or iTunes and rating this podcast. Um, if you give it a good rating and leave a nice comment, honestly, that's the best way to do it. Uh, please check me out on Instagram or uh, YouTube under Newer Kidwife. I'm constantly going to be sharing clips of this podcast and also uh, telling you when new episodes are out and sharing a little bit of my comedy. So thank you so much uh, and uh, tune in to another episode next time on God, yay or nay. <laughs>